because what Ukrainians are trying to show is we can hit you anywhere. We can get you anytime, any place, even in your capital. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Wednesday, May 31st. Today, I'm talking to Julia Yaffe, reporting from Europe after two private meetings on the future of Ukraine and Russia, about NATO, the Russian opposition, drone strikes in Moscow, and when the war will actually end. All that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy on the phone with Julia Yaffe. Julia, where are you in the world right now? I'm in Spain wrapping up my Memorial Day weekend, after which I will fly to Rome and bunker down for my one month book leave because I really have to finish this book or else my publisher will kill me. Hi, if you're listening, people from Echo at HarperCollins. <laughs> Well, that sounds lovely and uh, quite a bit more glamorous than like going to a little cabin upstate or something. That'll be next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julia, I, I want to talk to you about some of the latest surprises and, and twists in the Ukraine war, including these drone strikes that we saw just this week in Moscow. But let's start with what you're hearing and seeing yourself in, in Europe right now. I know you went to two conferences last week in Brussels and Vilnius about the future of Ukraine, about the future of Russia. What was sort of the, the scene and the mood like at each of those? It's interesting. The one that was about Ukraine was so energetic and kind of feisty. And there were, I mean, there were a lot of Ukrainians there, a lot of people from the U.S. government, from think tanks, both in Europe and in the U.S. There were also people from European governments, from NATO. And, you know, when this forum took place last year, it was just a few months into the war and people were still kind of in shock and were not sure how Ukraine was going to do, weren't sure that Ukraine was going to be able to sustain this level of effort, right? Because it, it was like June and Russia had just invaded at the end of February and people thought, okay, they beat the Russians back, the Russians messed up, but now the Russians were starting to take territory again. This was last summer. And things felt more scary last summer. This summer, or this May, people, you know, were talking about the future of Ukraine. Last year, it was like, hey, at some point, it would be good to talk about some kind of Marshall Plan for Ukraine, but that's so far away. Now, there's a sense that, sure, a lot of things are pending while we wait for the Ukrainian offensive. Most of Ukraine is still whole. It's still under Ukrainian rule. Its economy needs building back up. It needs infrastructure to be rebuilt, a lot of which is being built and fixed now, even as Russia continues to attack uh, Ukraine. And, you know, people were talking about pretty nitty gritty things like how can we get war insurance to private companies to encourage them to invest and continue to do business in Ukraine instead of pulling out because, you know, as you know, Ukraine's economy took a massive hit. Ukraine lost half of its coastline. Ukraine lost the steelworks in Mariupol, where it made a lot of its steel. 
the agriculture sector has been hit really hard, but the focus was more on, okay, how do we get things back up and running? How do we build the economy back up? How do we encourage foreign investment? You had people from the Senate, from the State Department talking about private public partnerships, getting more companies mm -hmm. in there than already were in there, the US Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, it was very concrete and, you know, defiant. And the Ukrainians there were mad, but feeling constructive. Whereas at the, you know, Future of Russia conference in Vilnius, it was organized by the Lithuanian foreign ministry. And most of the people in attendance were, or the speakers were members of the Russian opposition in exile, obviously. <laughs> Either you're in exile or you're at home in Russia and in jail. And it just felt so bleak and so hopeless. Putin is, seems at least stronger than ever inside the country. Nobody knows if he'll die tomorrow or in 12 years. You know, Brezhnev died when he was 82. Putin's only 70. And it felt like talking about what a post-Putin Russia or post-war Russia looks like was just like, you know, well, what kind of unicorn are you going to buy with your tooth fairy money? It just felt so imaginary and not real. Whereas the conference about the future Ukraine, ironically, even though that Ukraine is the one being invaded, being actively destroyed, it felt like Ukraine had a more hopeful future than Russia, if that makes sense. Well, it seems like after after all of this, of course, Ukraine has been drawn so much more closely to the West. That that period exactly. of indecision and debate over the future of Ukraine, whether it lay to the West or to the East, is over. You know, presumably, if if this war ends in such a way that Ukraine remains an independent country, it's not hard to imagine being a part of NATO, being much more closely aligned with the rest of Europe. And certainly it seems like a cause for optimism that officials are talking openly about reconstruction, about investment, about money that's on the sidelines ready to go into this country. Mm -hmm. I am curious, though, Julia, how you square that with Medvedev saying the other day that the war in Ukraine will last for decades. It seems like the, the, the Russians, at least publicly, have a, have a very different timeline in mind for when this comes to an end. Well, I think it's not that far off from where American officials think that this is going. A lot of the assessments are, you know, a stalemate or because what Medvedev was talking about is that it would go for decades because there would be a ceasefire for a couple of years, then it would, the war would start again, then another ceasefire. And, you know, I've heard people in DC talk about a similar scenario or a scenario that resembles where Israel and the Arab states were for decades, right? a few years of kind of very tense militarized peace followed by an outbreak of hot war and r rinse and repeat, right? Which got us to where the horrible state that part of the world is in now. But I don't want to even touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> but even, even if that's the case, right? Even if both Medvedev and Western and American military analysts and government officials are right, that still le leaves a huge chunk of Ukraine. Like Ukraine has to keep going and it can't fight a war with no economy. As a State Department official, I, I spoke to Dorothy McAuliffe, who is in charge of these private public partnerships at the State Department, was saying, you know, yeah, we're, we've already helped Ukraine rebuild scores of bridges because, yeah, it's crazy. On one hand, it's crazy to rebuild while things are being actively shelved. On the other hand, you know, how is Ukraine going to move 
soldiers and material around the country and fight a war without bridges and highways, right? You have to keep repairing them, even if they're going to get bombed again. And so that's a lot of money. That's a lot of investment that's needed. And, you know, the front is still pretty much one part of the country. Yes, Russia shells other, you know, Kiev, it attacked, as we've seen over the weekend. But Ukraine has much better air defenses now, missile defenses. And again, those cities have to keep going, keep living. You can't just leave them to rot. Whereas you talk about Russia, it feels like it's receding more and more into this kind of North Korea, Iran state of being. Well, especially with the members of the opposition you were talking about who were at this conference in Vilnius, when you think about the kind of soul searching that they're doing, it's, it's interesting I presume that some of the frustration is just that there there never was an uprising. There wasn't a rejection of Putin inside Russia. There was briefly this moment where it felt like there could be something. And, and you did see people out on the streets. And the crackdown was just so swift and so brutal that now there's less opposition than ever. I, I imagine that has to be absolutely crushing for critics outside the country who are wondering what happened to the country and now if there's any kind of hope for a change. Well, it's not just that. It's that there you know, in some ways, the uprising was people running, right, and rising up and voting with their feet. And over a million Russians have left and are continuing to leave Russia since the outbreak of the war. And those who oppose it are increasingly being arrested, fined, sent to jail, or keeping quiet. And the people who now find themselves in exile, especially in the West, are finding that they're not super welcome there. And that you know, they thought, hey, we're anti-Putin. We have the kind of moral wind at our backs. And in the West, they're discovering that nobody else sees it that way, or most people don't see it that way. They're encountering Ukrainians, for example, who are like, okay, you might be anti-Putin, but are you pro-Ukrainian? And where were you this whole time? How did you allow this invasion to happen? Why didn't you stay home and fight? Uh, what do you think about Ukraine and why have you said these kind of quasi-imperialistic things in the past and why do you continue saying them? That's one. And two, maybe you should stop complaining about Russians being quote-unquote canceled in Europe and uh, the West. And maybe you should stop complaining about how Russians are being treated because you didn't flee in the same way that we fled or that, you, you know, that Ukrainians fled. And they're encountering a lot of anger from Ukrainians that they don't really understand that they have to contend with. And there's definitely a split in the Russian opposition among people who say there's one school of thought that says, yes, Russian culture is inherently imperialist and we are all responsible for this and we will have to atone for this for generations and we have to absolutely break down and rebuild how we view the rest of the world and also the countries on our perimeter, especially Soviet, former Soviet republics. And there are those who say, we have nothing to atone for. We've been fighting Putin for decades, and we're against this war. We didn't want this war. We have nothing to atone for. And that, of course, gets them in trouble, understandably. So I think they are kind of bewildered by the response that they're getting in the West because they thought there was a moral clarity to their position. But it looks like the only party with any kind of moral clarity are the Ukrainians. And the Russians don't understand that. Julia, last question for you before we've got to go to a break. And, and speaking of Russian imperialism, I feel like when we were talking maybe around this time 
last year, there was this real fear elsewhere in Eastern Europe, in the Baltic states, especially Estonia, Lithuania, where you just were, that Russia could invade other countries, that there were other places that were soft targets for Russian influence. Obviously, like Belarus is sort of a um, co-combatant in, in Ukraine in various ways. Has that fear now passed? It does seem like Russia, I don't want to say they've been exposed as, as a paper tiger, that would be taking it too far. But we have seen the, their entire war machine thrown at Ukraine and stopped. I mean, so much of the Russian military has now been wasted over the last year in, in, in horrible, cruel, bloody ways. Is there less concern now in, in, in that part of the world that other countries could be next? I think it depends which country you're talking about. If you're talking about certain Western European NATO countries like France and Germany or the U.S., you know, there's a fear that NATO will get dragged into this war. And so whenever the question of NATO membership for Ukraine comes up, you have people like Jens Stoltenberg, the secretary general of NATO, saying, yes, of course, the place of Ukraine is in NATO eventually, but not right now, not while there's an active war going on, because there is this fear of nuclear escalation and that, you know, the larger powers in NATO U.S., France, Germany will get directly dragged in. If you talk to the Baltic countries, for example, or the Poles or the Czechs to a lesser extent, maybe the Brits to some extent, there's less of that kind of fear where they're saying, you know, what is he going to do, invade Ukraine? No, he's not going to use a nuclear weapon. We need to stand up to Putin. We need to be firmer because he's not going to really do anything because he is a paper tiger. That said, if you then look at what certain Baltic countries are doing, where they're not allowing Russians to settle there, you know, Russians who have fled Putin or who have fled the draft, they don't want a bigger Russian population. They don't want them to be become even more of a political bloc than they are. And they are very afraid of Russian kind of cross-border influence where you don't need a war machine, but you could be pretty effective if you just have Russians and you feed them enough information across the border, then they'll vote in a certain way in Lithuania or Latvia or Estonia. And there is very much a fear of that, not the military, but certain kind of covert political influence. So different parts of Europe, I would say, are afraid of different things and in different ways. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to ask you about the Ukrainian drone strikes this week in Moscow. All right, welcome back. Julia, on Tuesday morning, there were a series of drone attacks in Moscow, presumably carried out by Ukraine, although Ukraine gave the sort of non-denial denial. Maybe it was the intelligence forces. We don't know. Are sources that you talk to in Europe worried about potential escalation here, or are they sort of cheering on watching Ukraine strike within Russia? Again, I think it depends who you talk to. I'm sure people in the U.S. government aren't super pleased to see this, especially, you know, when we saw the cross-border raid, what was it, last week? You know, the Russians were very quick to disseminate pictures of Humvees, American vehicles stuck in the mud in the Belgorod region. There was talk that some of it was staged, et cetera, but the Russians were clearly trying to indicate that, you know, this is U.S. weaponry, U.S. machinery that's involved in attacking the Russian homeland 
which the Biden administration has been at pains to avoid, right? That's why the U.S. hasn't given Ukraine attackums, the like very long-range missiles, in part why it's been resistant to give them F-16s, right? They don't want American hardware to strike deep into Russian territory and drag the U.S. into a war even more directly than it is already involved in. And whereas Russia has been saying from the beginning that it's fighting America and it's fighting NATO in Ukraine, that it's not even really directly. I mean, sure, we're fighting Ukrainian Nazis, but really we're fighting the West in Ukraine because Ukraine is an American puppet state. They're very eager to show the cross-border raids into the neighboring regions of Russia as American attacks. When you look at the Russian response to the drone attacks, it is more focused on not tying it to the Americans. I think because that would be too scary. This is like the Ukrainian terrorist regime has launched a couple basically slingshot attacks at our capital. We shot everything down. Our air defenses worked perfectly. Our officials and our emergency response worked perfectly. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. America is not attacking our capital. Is They're very much trying to downplay it. Yeah, that sort of surprised me. And just in general, I feel like lately we've been hearing less apocalyptic commentary out of Moscow. Obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, that this may be just sort of my own media diet reflecting my perceived danger of escalation. But, you know, a number of months ago, you and I, I feel like we're having very different conversations about Putin threatening to potentially use a tactical nuclear weapon. There were real fears of that in Washington as well, as, as you were just saying. And then this week, you have drones hitting buildings in Russia's capital. And the response from the government seems pretty muted, all things considered. I, I didn't expect that. I think they don't want to panic their population, and they don't want to make Ukraine seem more powerful than it is, right? They want to talk up how good their government is in responding to this puny attack. They don't want to give the Ukrainians the win, because what Ukrainians are trying to show is we can hit you anywhere. We can get you anytime, any place, even in your capital, right? Because the last time a Ukrainian drone or an alleged Ukrainian drone got to Moscow and exploded right over the Kremlin, a lot of what people said was, oh, this has, including Russians and including the Russian opposition, they said this couldn't have been Ukraine. This was a false flag attack by the Russians because the capital and the Kremlin are too well defended for the Ukrainians to be able to penetrate it. And if you say, oh, they did, they were able to penetrate it, then that means the capital is not very well defended. That means, again, you would be telling your own people that you are a paper tiger, which they have not been, right? So Russians support the war, for example, right? But they support the war they see on TV. And the war they see on TV is is one that is going well. And they don't understand that their country's army is a paper tiger. They think it's been going super well. And every loss, every setback is reframed in a way to keep Russians confident in their government, in their military, and in the rightness of their mission. If you make these attacks to be a big deal, and if you had, for example, CNN in Moscow, which would have you know hyped this up 
to extraordinary proportions and done wall-to-wall coverage and this is a fucking emergency and blah 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 then people might not support the war right they might be like wait they're gonna come for us now because a large part of the kremlin's strategy politically has been to maintain normalcy right to kind of do in ukraine what the u.s did in iraq in the sense that it's happening over there far away with somebody else's sons doing the fighting and um your life will not change in any way. So they have to maintain this facade of normalcy and talk about how these attacks were not a big deal. They didn't even put a chink in our armor and our the authorities and our air defense systems worked great. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. Go back to your daily lives. Let us keep doing this war. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. So you're saying essentially, if the choice is between brushing off this attack, making it look as if it's not a big deal, and using it as an opportunity to denounce Ukraine, to say that, look, this this is an evil, fascist, neo-Nazi empire that we have to take down, that it's our, our duty to be fighting them, and you see why it's more important than ever. They're erring on the side of, this is not a big deal. Everybody relax. We've got this thing. They're doing both. <laughs> sure. Why right? not both? It's like the internet meme, why not both? I mean, <laughs> what they're doing is, so Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman, came out and said, nothing to see here, but also it's exactly what you said. This underscores the need to destroy this regime, this Nazi terrorist regime, because they're attacking civilians in in Moscow. And it's like, oh, okay, you're against attacking civilians now. Got it. But um, we have a report now uh, from a Russian independent media organization named Medusa that you know, they got their hands on some of the talking points that were distributed to pro-government or government-controlled publications, telegram channels, etc., which is emphasize that Ukraine is terrible and a terrorist state. But even given that, this was not a big deal. They weren't able to do real damage. The drones were shot down. Our, the authorities responded well. Everything's under control. So we have now some proof that this is the official kind of response. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And even so, I, I guess I'm just wondering whether there is also some sort of subtle tonal shift here that is mm-hmm. that maybe highlights something about the way the dynamics within Russia have changed over the last year yeah. or so, in that there, there have to be a little bit less bombastic, that there is some kind of acknowledgement at some level that perhaps their, their reach has exceeded their grasp in Ukraine, and they don't feel capable of making the same kind of aggressive commentaries you might have seen 12 months ago. Yeah, I I wish that were the case. But it seems that the mood in Russia's official levels is as apocalyptic as ever. And as clothed in this kind of dark, destructive mysticism that it was at the very beginning of the war, that this is a kind of apocalyptic fight between the Antichrist and the Christian empire that is Russia, which is why you see all this, this being attended in Russia by this language of, you know, we're fighting non-traditional values, we're fighting trans people, etc. Because they still see it as if they win, then Russia ceases to exist. Russia will be destroyed. Russian culture will be wiped out from the face of the earth they've still backed themselves into a corner. And unfortunately, it has worked with even with people who oppose the war. People I talk to in Russia will say, you know, I didn't want this war. I don't like it. But at this point, 
we can't lose because if we lose, my life is over. And that kind of thinking gets people to a very, very dark place. And I think people in the elites are still very scared and are fighting this war out of their own survival. And it is gets dressed up in increasingly dark, insane, apocalyptic tones so that it makes sense to them. I was trying to find a silver lining here for us, for us to I'm end so the show sorry. on. But I, no, I, I, no it's, it's okay. But I think there is a silver lining. I mean, the silver lining is the fact that Moscow is not that well defended, it turns out. The, the regions bordering a country with which Russia is at war are not very well defended. And that the Ukrainian intelligence service, as you know, readers of the best and the brightest will know, are doing these kind of shaping operations to prepare the ground psychologically to wage this long-awaited offensive, right? It's to put Russians on the back foot, have them wondering, as one U.S. government official told me, to have the Russians fucking wondering when they go to sleep at night where the Ukrainians are going to hit. And if you're expecting the Ukrainians to hit toward Mariupol and toward the Azov Sea, but they're hitting, sending drones into Moscow, that that's disorienting. And that's that's the point. And so far, they're being quite successful. So I think that's a silver lining. It is for me, because you know who side I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that happy note, Julia, it's always so wonderful to talk to you. Enjoy your book leave. Good luck. Thank you. And we'll have you back on the show in a few weeks. Totally. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.